Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs as we begin a new series. I noted as I turned in my Bible that uh, Proverbs starts on almost exactly the middle page in the Bible. So if you're looking for Proverbs, turn about halfway through. You're looking for the book that's after Psalms and before Ecclesiastes. In this section of God's Word that we call the wisdom books. This is a group of books in the Old Testament that are about understanding in living life and all of their ups and their downs, their ins and their outs, their blessings and their sorrows in faith and dependence upon the Lord. They're written for God's people and they describe how to live life as God created it to be lived in ways that would reflect His character and yield His blessing. And Proverbs fits right into that context. Before we dig in, I'd like to give you just a little bit of background as we start a new book. We come to Proverbs, and this is a book that's almost entirely the wisdom of Solomon. It's one of the kings of Israel. The first 24 chapters of Proverbs tell us directly that they are the wisdom of Solomon. Chapters 25 to 29, the next five chapters then, tell us that they are also the wisdom of Solomon, but they were uh, copied and added to this collection during Hezekiah's reign about 200 years after. So uh, we have 29 chapters of Solomon's wisdom, some directly from him, some copied and added to this collection uh, by um, Hezekiah's scribes. And that leaves just the last two chapters, chapters 30 and 31, which are wisdom from two other men, Agur and Lemuel. And we don't know anything about those two guys. We have no idea who they are or where they come from. We do know that these chapters of wisdom from from Agur and Lemuel quote from the Psalms and talk about the fear of the Lord. Uh, So they are either men uh, who are part of Israel or well familiar uh, with Israel and their God, or they're men whose wisdom is taken and adapted by Solomon or the kings, uh, the scribes under Hezekiah, perhaps, uh, to uh, be included in this group for God's people. Of course, it shouldn't be surprising to us that a book of wisdom would come from Solomon, because uh, we know that uh, Solomon prayed for wisdom and that the Lord granted him wisdom. First Kings chapter 4 verse 29 tells us, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Can you imagine there being a man like that today whose wisdom was greater than the wisdom of anyone else on earth, who had been given wisdom directly from God, a man for whom people would flock from all around the world to seek his wisdom? If a man like that were, were here today, I mean, his TED Talks would be packed out. His podcasts would have millions of, of followers. And yet, here, 
right in front of us in God's Word, we have that wisdom from a man like that. A man whose wisdom was inspired by God and preserved by the Spirit of God for us. And so that should whet our appetite for this book as we come to it in the coming months. Now, just a quick note about the structure of this book. There's a number of subsections in Proverbs, but it roughly divides into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 9 are uh, an introduction to wisdom. Here, Solomon lays out an argument in these first nine chapters, addressing the importance of wisdom and how to get it, and the nature of our, our quest and what's at stake in it and what might tempt us from it. And so we're going to work fairly systematically through these first nine chapters of Proverbs as we hear uh, this argument from Solomon, this invitation from him. Then chapter 10 begins a a collection of wise sayings. There's not a a particular structure or order into those wise sayings, and so we'll address those chapters more topically to give them some structure for, for our time through them. And as, as for you to know and maybe look forward to, I think appropriate to the nature of wisdom, I've asked each of the pastors on our staff to take some of these topics, and I think we'll all benefit from the wisdom and experience of our pastoral team uh, as we work through the wisdom of Proverbs together. So that's a bit of what's ahead, but this morning I want to look at just the first seven verses, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So if you would follow me, as we read God's Word together. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom, which is given to us in it. And we ask that your spirit, the spirit of wisdom, would work in our hearts Give us an understanding of you and your character, and may we come and grow in it through Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. On a typical evening in our home when we sit down to dinner, seven different sets of opinions sit around that table. And so it's not uncommon for us to start to talk about our, uh, the various merits or opinions about games or food or activities. And of course, when we do so, it's also not uncommon for someone to proclaim that a particular food or activity is the best in the world and someone else to immediately say, oh no, that's actually the worst in the world. Such is the fate of quiche in our home. When quiche shows up at the dinner table, one of my sons would rank it as perhaps his favorite food and will eat it as much as it's given, and the other says something about it being the unstomachable bane of the dinner menu and would rather starve than put a fork full in his mouth. Well, as I began preparing for Proverbs, I quickly came to realize that in the opinions of the church, Proverbs is a little bit like quiche. 
Some love the book of Proverbs and find it easy to read and apply, where others find it rather mundane and uninspiring. I was reading Charles Bridges. Charles Bridges was an English minister in the early 19th century. One of his uh, uh, greatest distinctions is that Bridges was Charles Spurgeon's favorite commentator to read in preparation for his sermons. And Bridges notes in the introduction to his commentary on Proverbs, he said, I've often heard it said by people in the church, I am less interested in Proverbs than in any other part of Scripture. I know it's God's Word, but where are the great doctrines of the faith? Where are the glories of Christ in this book? So maybe you fall into one of these camps. Maybe you love Proverbs and love to read it and apply it. Maybe you don't love Proverbs and miss some of these great doctrines or glories. But as we begin this series, I would like to suggest that it is possible for both of these opinions to miss the true depth and glory of this book of God's Word. Now, sometimes I think we enjoy reading Proverbs and we can get some quick life advice, some pithy sayings for how to speak or how to live. But if that's all we're looking for in the book of Proverbs, we will completely miss the depth of this book of God's Word. And I would suggest that this book is not at all devoid of the great doctrines of the faith, nor of the blessing for God's people. Because my thesis coming to this book, and I'll tell you right at the front, is this, that Proverbs reflects and magnifies the character of God and is written as a source of blessing and joy for God's people. Proverbs reflects and magnifies the character of God and is written as a source of blessing and joy for God's people. And I I think these first seven verses make that clear right from the start. I want to see that this morning. So, in order to help us see this, I want to do three things. I want to follow a stream, set the stage, and build a foundation. Follow a stream, set the stage, and build a foundation. That's our goal this morning. Let's start by following a stream. When I say that I want to follow a stream, I mean that I want to follow what God has said about wisdom to this point in His Word, because I think that will help us to understand and to read Proverbs in the way that God's people would have read and understood it. The stream begins right in the Garden of Eden. Right from the start, God offered Adam and Eve wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil and dependence upon Him, and He offered it to them through a tree in the garden. The question was, would Adam and Eve believe Satan who said, what, there's a tree that's off limits? God must be holding something back from you. And if you would really want wisdom, you're going to have to reach out and take it on your own. Will Adam and Eve disobey God and try to find wisdom their own way to reach out and take it themselves across God's commandments and so learn the knowledge of good and evil by doing evil and suffer the death of and destruction as a result? Or would Adam and Eve trust the Lord and find true wisdom, learning the difference between good and evil through obedience, and so enjoying the blessing of life in the presence of God? Well, if you've read the book of Genesis, you know the answer to that question. Adam and Eve disobeyed, 
And all mankind after them and with them were separated from God and descended into sin and suffering and death as a result. But the glorious news, and really the whole point of Scripture, is that that wasn't the end of the story. God, out of His sheer grace and mercy, chose to call a man, Abraham, and his descendants after him back into relationship with him. And when Abraham's descendants were enslaved in Egypt, God acted with a strong hand and an outstretched arm to save them and to make them his people, Israel. And if you remember in the book of Exodus, one of the first blessings that God gave his people after saving them from Egypt was the gift of his law. And on Mount Sinai, he gave them his laws. They were standards of righteousness and justice that would confront Israel's sin and show them how to live life according to God's character in ways that would bring about blessing and life in his presence. In the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 4, Moses reminds Israel of what a blessing they have in God's law. He says in chapter 4, verses 5 to 9, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this law that I set before you today. Do you see this blessing that God has given out of His grace and mercy to His people? His law, which would be the source of wisdom, how to live in reflection of His character as He created life to be lived in order to find blessing in His presence. God didn't just pull Israel out of Egypt and then drop them off at the promised land exit and say, have fun. No, He gave them this gift and this blessing of laws so righteous and good that if Israel follows them, they will flourish and all the nations around them will marvel at the wisdom that they have thanks to the gift from God. Sadly, Israel did not keep these rules. As we keep reading through Joshua and then through the book of Judges, we find out that like Adam and Eve, they went out and did what was right in their own eyes instead of following these rules. And the yearning of the book of Judges is for a king who will lead Israel in the ways of the Lord. When God called godly kings, David and Solomon, they had a unique responsibility to lead God's people according to his law in the wisdom that he had provided. And that's why, if you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God said that when he gave kings to Israel, each king was to begin their reign by copying themselves a copy of God's law so that they would have it to read daily, that they might have the source of God's wisdom right in front of their eyes and in front of their hearts so that they could lead God's people according to his law. The king was supposed to be a leader in wisdom and righteousness of God's people. And I think Solomon recognized that unique responsibility 
in that famous prayer that he prayed in 1 Kings chapter 3. You remember that when God said to Solomon, ask me, ask me for something, ask me for anything you would like. And Solomon in 1 Kings 3 prayed this, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind or give your servant wisdom as it says in Chronicles to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. And we find when we read in 1 Kings that the Lord answered Solomon's prayer. He gave him wisdom from the Lord to govern his people. So when we come to Solomon, I want you to realize what we have here. We have a man who has copied out God's law in dependence upon the source of wisdom that God gave his people as a blessing and a gift. And then a man who prayed for wisdom. And God answered that prayer and gave him wisdom directly that he might lead God's people wisely and well. And so when we come to Proverbs, we have the writings of this man given to us through the spirit and providence of God. And I want you to remember, do you remember the Queen of Sheba from Kings? The Queen of Sheba was one of those who came to visit Solomon And in 1 Kings 10, verse 8, after listening to Solomon's wisdom, we read, she was utterly astonished. And she said, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Now here's the point I want us to understand. That wisdom that astonished the queen and made her rejoice for Solomon's people, we have in Proverbs. God's Spirit has preserved that and given that to us in his word. And so when we come to Proverbs, we do not just have a list of common sense do's and don'ts. No, we have a book written by God's king for God's people based on God's law, which was his gift for his people, as a sign and a testimony of God's love for them. You hear the queen's words? This wisdom from Solomon is a sign that the Lord loved Israel forever. This is a book from the Lord that we might live in ways that lead to life and flourishing rather than suffering and death. What a blessing we have here, this gift of grace from the Lord. And so it's no wonder that when we turn to the New Testament, we find that Romans and Hebrews, and James, and 1 Peter, and 2 Peter, they're all, quote, Proverbs as guidance for the church, as the Spirit of God enables us to follow this wisdom more and more in union with Jesus Christ. And so each week, we're going to come and feast at this table to learn the skill of living life as God created us to live and desires us to live it. Wisdom from the Lord based on his law, from the wisdom provided to Solomon. And that's what we have in store for us in this book. So I hope that that whets your appetite and says, yes, this is a good book as a gift from the Lord for us to turn to. Well, that's the stream I wanted to follow. Next, I want to set the stage. You know, if you've uh, been in a play or been around acting that 
setting the stage involves building the props uh, or the, the stage scenery, putting out various props on, on, the, on the stage. It's giving a visual context for the audience so that when the action starts, the audience has some idea of what's happening and where it's happening. Well, for us, setting the stage means defining some terms and clarifying the goal so that we know what's happening when Solomon starts making his case for wisdom. So I want to turn to the text, and if you have your Bibles open in front of you, we'll start there with verse 1. We're told that this book is filled with Proverbs of Solomon. Well, what is a proverb? Well, in Hebrew, just like in English, a proverb is a short saying capturing a truth about life. It's intended to capture principles of God's character and the way God's creation operates. Proverbs are not exhaustive treatises. Proverbs won't explain everything you want to know about an issue. Proverbs will lead some questions unanswered, and they will take wisdom to know how to apply them well. That's all part of the nature of Proverbs, but that is what we should expect in this book, a collection of sayings calling our attention to the way life works as it was created by God and as it is ruled by God. Well, then verse 2, Solomon tells us why he's writing. What's his purpose in writing these Proverbs? He says it is to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Okay, to know wisdom, that's our goal. Well, I wonder uh, if you were filling out a quiz, this is maybe the set of question I would give as a teacher on a quiz, how would you define wisdom? What is wisdom? Maybe you have a, a quick definition in your mind, or, or maybe not. One of the most common definitions I hear is knowing what is right and doing it. Or, or another definition I hear often is making the best choice in a given situation. And those are, those are good definitions. Those are included in wisdom. But in Scripture, wisdom is broader than that. If you start to think through Scripture, you might remember in the book of Exodus, there were two guys named Bezalel and Aholiab, and God called them to build the temple or the tabernacle because they were skilled in craftsmanship. And the text in Hebrew calls that skill wisdom. It says that their skill in craftsmanship is a wisdom that God had given them. Those of you, uh, unlike me, who have skills in home repair and gardening have a wisdom that I don't have, we could say. Dealing with others well, speaking well, making just judgments in the courtroom, understanding creation, all of these things are part of wisdom. And as we start to look at all these things that the Bible talks about, when it talks about wisdom, I like how one author concluded. He said, as I look at all these things, I think perhaps the best definition we can give of wisdom is skill at doing life. Skill at life. Now, that's a good definition. However, I want to make sure we understand and recognize it is skill at doing life as God created it and as He intends it. Do you notice in verse 3 here, as Solomon talks about his goal to know wisdom, in verse 3, he immediately qualifies it by moral conditions, wise dealings in righteousness, in justice, and in equity. In other words, biblically speaking, skill at life or wisdom assumes a life lived according to the character of God and the righteousness of God's law. 
So perhaps a better definition of wisdom would be this. Here's, here's my uh, definition of wisdom as we get started in this book. Wisdom is an attentiveness to God's Word, God's character, and God's created order in order to live life knowledgeably and well as God intended it to be lived. I'll say that again. Wisdom is an attentiveness to God's Word, God's character, and God's created order in order to live life knowledgeably and well as God intended it to be lived. And to know and to grow in that wisdom is Solomon's goal for the book of Proverbs. Well, who is Solomon writing for? Look at verses 4 and 5. He tells us three groups of people he's writing for. Verse 4, he's writing to give prudence to the simple. Now, the simple, that's, that's not the kind of word you don't wake up in the morning and saying, I, you know, I hope I'm simple today. And we shouldn't be. Simple is not necessarily a positive word. In the text, as we'll uh, continue to study in, in Proverbs, the simple is the person who has never really thought about or considered issues of wisdom and folly at all. They have not reflected on these issues. Now, they just sort of live life as it comes. And this is a fault. This is a fault in the simple, and it comes with great danger because they've not taken the time to reflect on wisdom and folly. However, because they are not committed to folly, they are not the wicked or the fool yet, there is still hope for repentance, instruction, and wisdom. And so the first group Solomon's writing for are those who are simple. They have not taken the time to reflect on this, and he is writing to give prudence to the simple. Still in verse 4, the second group, he says, he's writing to give knowledge and discretion to the youth. The youth are those who are just coming to maturity in life, and they need to choose which path they are going to follow. I think we can all uh, picture that point in life as we begin to grow and, and have more independence that we need to choose for ourselves. We are no longer just doing what our parents tell us to do. Which path will I take in life? The youth are just setting out on life's journey, and Solomon desires to teach them knowledge and discretion and to protect them against folly and destruction. As we begin to, to work through Proverbs, we're going to see over and over that the authors of Proverbs, that Solomon addresses this book to my son. My son, listen to my instruction. This is a book of a father who longs to guide his son and, and all those who are young, according to the introduction here, toward wisdom. And so, children, teens, those of you who are in college, hear Solomon's words here at the beginning. You, in a particular way, are the audience of this book, and I hope you'll give your intent, uh, attention to God's Word as we work through it. Then in verse 5, we find that the wise themselves will benefit from this book, because in reading it, they will increase in learning. One of the things we'll learn in Proverbs is that one of the marks of wisdom is the humility to recognize you still need much wisdom. And that humility and that desire to learn and that willingness to hear those who have instruction for us is a key mark of the wise. Quite unlike the fool, you'll see the, that last phrase in verse 7 says that fools ignore or even despise wisdom. And so 
Uh, Solomon is writing this book also for the wise, that they might grow even more in knowledge and understanding. So here's the stage. The stage is set as we want to move into this book. This book is a collection of Proverbs written to the simple, the young, and the wise that they might know wisdom and instruction. That's what the book of Proverbs is up to according to these first verses. All right, we've followed the stream. We've set the stage. Finally, I want to build a foundation. The foundation, of course, is the solid rock that will support the house that's going to be built on it. And you don't need to be an architect or an engineer to know that if you have a bad foundation that cracks or shifts, it's going to impact the entire house, no matter how beautifully built the house might be. Just ask the builders of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. That, of course, is a gorgeous building, beautifully designed and executed. But, unfortunately, the architect decided to include only a tiny limestone foundation set on clay. And so the whole building began to fall over while it was still being built. It's pretty important for us to know the foundation. And so the question for us is, what foundation... What commitment right from the start will support a life of wisdom? And we read it in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now Solomon's point here is so important that he says it at both the beginning and the end of his introduction. Remember I told you that the first nine chapters of Proverbs introduce this summons to wisdom. He says it here in chapter 9 verse 10. He'll say it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job 28, 28, and Psalm 111, verse 10 say the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so I think it's safe to say that the consistent argument of Scripture is that the fear of the Lord is the necessary starting point and the foundation for a life of wisdom. Now, when the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it doesn't mean that we start with the fear of the Lord and then move on to other things. I I sort of uh, channel my my best uh, Julie Andrews here when I say, when you read, you begin with A, B, C. When you sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. And I'm saying that to you, not singing it, because I don't want to assault your ears this morning. Uh, But you, you know what that means. You start with your letters, and then you move on to read. But when you move on to read, you still have to know your letters. If you forget your letters, you're not going to be able to read. And the same could be said with the fear of the Lord. You must begin by fearing the Lord, but you must continue to fear the Lord. Because if at any point we cease to fear the Lord, then wisdom will not be possible. Wisdom, we could say, assumes, necessitates a heart that fears the Lord at all times. Well, if that's true, what does it mean to fear the Lord? The Bible talks quite a bit about fearing the Lord. We could have a a whole sermon just about what it means to fear the Lord. Psalm 2 verse 11 urges us, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 calls us to bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. One of my favorite passages, Exodus 20, you remember the people of Israel trembling before the lightnings and the thunderings of the presence of God on Mount Sinai. But Moses says to them, do not fear, for God has come to test you so that you might fear him. And we think, well, wait a second, 
What is it? What is that supposed to mean? Don't fear because God wants you to fear him. Or we think, well, rejoicing with trembling, those seem like contradictions. How do we sort this out? But actually, the puzzle is not too hard to solve, I don't think. Over the last two weeks, I've been rereading Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And if you know the story, you may remember how in the the second book, Gandalf, the, the powerful and prophetic leader of elves and men, comes back when everyone thought he was dead. And at first, confronted by his power, which is so much greater than them, his friends are terrified, thinking that he is an enemy and that they are finished. But then that fear turns to joy when they realize that this is their friend who's on their side. And I think that's the principle here. Someone who is so much greater than us, so far more powerful than us, commands our awe and our fear. But that fear, that recognition of who they are, will either be terrifying or comforting, depending on whether it's for you or against you. One way we could say it, perhaps, is that the fear of the Lord is recognizing who God is in all His holiness, justice, and power. And that will immediately lead us to take with weighty seriousness how much He deserves to be worshipped and obeyed. And how easily we slip into temptation and sin. And how thoroughly we stand before Him in every area of life at every moment of our life. But of course, the glory of Scripture is that standing before this awesome God, if we have trusted Christ, we will not cower in terror because the power of this very God has been stretched forth to save us and rescue us and give us life in Him. Charles Bridges, who I mentioned earlier, sums all this up by saying, the fear of the Lord is an affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's will in every area of life with a watchfulness against sin and an earnest desire to please one whose love for us in Christ is so sweet. An affectionate reverence for God, humbly bending ourselves to His will in every area of life, with a watchfulness against sin, knowing who He is, and an earnest desire to please one whose love for us is so sweet in Christ. And it is this attitude, this fear of the Lord, this recognition of God's authority over us in every area of life that warns us of the deadly consequences of sin and encourages us and summons us to righteousness and holiness. It's that attitude that is the foundation of wisdom according to Scripture. Once we come to an end this morning, let me just ask you this. If the fear of the Lord is the necessary precondition of wisdom, then this entire series in Proverbs will be wasted if we don't get this first step right, if we do not fear the Lord. And so would you take a minute to examine your heart and ask whether you fear the Lord? Do you casually think about God every once in a while? Or are He and His words your regular comfort and guide? Do you think about God in church but find yourself living like the world when you're at school 
or in the office? Are there things God says in His Word that you try to ignore or rationalize away? Or is His Word your decisive standard for every area of life? Is there an area of your life where you know that you are sinning, but you go on doing it anyway, thinking, well, it's not that big of a deal. I know God forgives. Or do you hate sin and tremble both at the thought that you might dishonor the one who has given his son for you and that you have to stand before him and give account? Do the opinions of others sway you? Or is the opinion of God's word final in your life? These are just some of the questions that we might use to examine our hearts and ask whether we fear the Lord. But let's be clear right from the start. The fear of the Lord is the foundation. It is the beginning and the necessary starting point of anyone who would be wise, of anyone who would hear the instruction of God's word based on God's law coming from God's character through the man God gave wisdom to. We must have the fear of the Lord. So we've seen the rich blessing that God offers us in this book. We've seen its goal to offer us wisdom based on the fear of the Lord. There's just one question left for us this morning. Do you want wisdom? Proverbs 4 verse 7 tells us that the first step for anyone who would be wise is to desire wisdom. If you would want wisdom, you have to desire it. So will you pursue it with me in the fear of the Lord and the sure hope that if we are in Christ, we have the spirit of wisdom in us and dwelling in us? to enable us in this pursuit. Let's pray together. Father, how I thank you for this book of Scripture that you've given us. Not a list of do's and don'ts to just take here or take there. No, a book inspired by your spirit of wisdom, given to your King whom you gave wisdom, based on your law, which was the standard of wisdom, as a great blessing to your people and a sign that the Lord loves his people. Oh, Father, might we examine our hearts and come in the fear of the Lord to know you and your character, that we might live as you would want us to live, that we might find life and blessing and not death and destruction. And may it all be for the glory of your name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.